He said, well, I got three guys that are waiting on a haircut, but if you want to, my wife will shave you. And so he thought about it. He said, well, I don't really have time to wait, so I'll let your wife shave me. So he sits down in the chair, and she gets the razor out and goes through the whole spiel. And uh, when she was done, she said, all right, that'll be $30. And he was flabbergasted. He said, I ain't never paid that for a haircut, let alone a shave. But he didn't want to make a scene, so he paid her the $30. And, uh, so uh, he got home, and his wife said, uh, how much did she charge you? Or how much did they charge you? He said, well, $30. She said, well, you ain't going to be able to keep this up. <laughs> and he said, well, I know, but I'm sick of shaving. Well, a funny thing happened. Later on that day, he felt of his face, and it was just smooth as a baby's bottom. There wasn't no whiskers to be found. And he thought, well, this is strange, but he didn't think too much about it. So the next day he woke up, felt his face, and sure enough, it was just smooth as a baby's bottom. And this went on for two whole weeks. His face, not a whisker to be found. And he thought to himself, you know, I need to go back to this barber shop and talk to this preacher and find out what's going on. So he went to the, uh, back, back to the barber shop, and the barber said, sir, can I help you? He said, well, uh, I got a question. He said, I came in here two weeks ago and he said I got a shave and he said uh, my whiskers hadn't grown back and he said well how much did it cost you how much did I charge you he said $30 he said oh I see he said so my wife shaved you and he said yes he said well my wife's name is Grace and he says if you've been shaved by Grace then you're once shaved always shaved <laughs> All right. Nothing like a good Baptist joke, right? <laughs> I want to talk to you about, did I tell it right? I, I practiced it several times, okay. Uh, after the rapture this morning, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just have, open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. Uh, Lord, I pray you give me the grace to preach and teach your word. Uh, give me the, uh, the, uh, the anointing, the unction. Let me speak clearly and concisely. Lord, let me not add to or take away from anything that's written in this word. And let me not preach my own ideas. Father God, just help me. And we'll give you the praise for everything you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to the next slide. Uh, just, just a rehearsal from last week. The mystery of Israel's blindness. In Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, uh, James says that it was always God's intention to visit the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. And he says in Acts 15, verse 16, after this, after what? After God takes the Gentiles out, a people for himself, he says, after this, I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David. In other words, I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start with my program that I've had all along. With it. God has many, many unfulfilled promises to the nation of Israel. And we serve a God that keeps his promises. And God's going to make good on those. Romans 11, Paul makes a statement. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant uh, of this mystery. Now, the, when, the, when the New Testament speaks of mystery, don't think of mystical or mysterious it just means something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. That's all it means. The church was not revealed in the Old Testament. He said there is a mystery 
He said, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. And that's what replacement theology does. Replacement theology makes us feel big and bad like we have somehow replaced Israel. We are, not a, we are a partaker of the blessings of Israel, but we are not takers over of Israel. Amen? We are a part of it. You might be interested to know that in the Old Testament, the new covenant that God speaks of, He said, I will make a new covenant with Judah and with the house of Israel. The new covenant was actually made with the Jewish people. You and I are grafted into that. Okay, and it's a wonderful thing. We've been adopted into the family of God. But uh, last part of that scripture in Romans 11, it says, blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles come in. So at some point in time, the last Gentile is going to get saved. Only God knows when or who that will be. And, and then the whole program will shift. All right, let's go to the next slide. I hear my grandson over there talking. He's getting excited. Praise God. All right. Now, last week we talked about three uh, New Testament passages that speak of the rapture. One is John 14, where Jesus is in the upper room. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, and where is Jesus right now? In heaven, the right hand of the Father. There you may be also. So this is different than the second coming. At the second coming, Christ comes to the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. But at the rapture, we're going to meet him in the air, and that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about. At the trumpet of God, we who are alive and remain, we're not going to go before the dead in Christ. They are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talked about the mystery again of the rapture. People say, well, uh, why, didn't, why don't we see Jesus talking about the rapture? Well, uh, the rapture was not revealed until Paul. And when Jesus was teaching on the earth, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The church, when Jesus was on the earth, the church was a future event. The church was a future entity. It wasn't until Acts chapter 2, after Jesus died and rose again, did the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, we have to be changed in order to go to heaven. I can't go to heaven the way that I am, because I have a sin nature. Right? And you do too. All right. Uh, so I would encourage you to go back and look at those. Let's go to the next program. Uh, next slide. The next program is uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I was going to talk about the tribulation today, but then I realized what I need to do is go through and talk about all the things that are going to happen with believers. Okay? The next thing that's going to happen after the rapture for believers is that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in Romans 14, verse 10, it says that we shall all. Notice Paul says we. He included himself in that. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us, he says, is going to give an account of himself to God. Now, that's a sobering thought, folks. That's a sobering thought. Let's go to the next slide. See how quickly these are going? You're getting excited, aren't you? Lunch might be just around the corner. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Paul says, for we, again, personal pronoun, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema seat. 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, for we are made manifest unto God, and I trust they're also made manifest in your consciences. So, after the rapture, the church is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's go to the next slide. You're really excited now, aren't you? Let's all turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as we like to do sometimes, this will be an interactive Bible study. Brother Adam, if you would help me read here this morning. It's the least you could do after I made that speaker feedback that way. Busted everybody's eardrums. I did it for your sake. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, if you'll read verses 10 through 15. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. All right, thank you. So this is really the quintessential passage about the judgment seat of Christ for the believer. I want to make a few things clear. Number one, the basis of this judgment is the works of the believer. It is not, we're not being judged for sin. And that's an important distinction to make. When you got saved, your sins were judged. You know what the word justified means? It means you have been declared righteous. Not by the Supreme Court, that'd be one thing. But you've been declared not guilty by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there is no such thing as double jeopardy. I'm not going to be tried for my sins all over again. Because when God justified me, now how are we justified? By what? By faith, by grace. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him or credited, credited unto him for righteousness. You and I are justified when we believe in Christ and trust him as our Savior. We have been justified. Has anybody been justified this morning? If you have been, you ought to say, praise God. Hallelujah. So it's the basis of this judgment is works. It's what you do after you're saved. Okay? It's not a judgment for sin. I think sometimes we get this idea we're going to get to heaven and then God's going to beat us up for all the things that we've done. That's not what this is about. It's based on our works and it's based on how we have built upon the foundation. What is the foundation? Jesus, right? He's the basis of our faith. So it's what you do after you become uh, a Christian. All right, the third thing. The emphasis, I want you see, the emphasis is not on the quantity of work. Some of us think, well, if I'm just a busy bee, you know, if I just do, 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 and if I, if I just can work myself half to death, then God will be pleased. But if, as we'll see here, the emphasis is not on the quantity of the work, but it's quality. I used to listen to sports radio a lot. I don't listen to it as much anymore. 
But there was a company called Charlotte Copy Data. You remember their commercials? Anybody remember their radio commercials? You remember Adam? Well, I actually know the founder of uh, Charlotte Copy Data. One, there was three guys that founded it. And one of the guys, his name's Cal Carduce. And the slogan of, his, uh, of Charlotte Copy Data was, Our accent is on quality. Anybody remember that ad? Our accent is on quality. Okay? So the judgment seat of Christ, the accent is on the quality of the work, not the quantity. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, the means of testing is going to be fire. God is going to put fire to the work. Now, let's say I've got a whole bunch, and, and the scripture talks about uh, three different, six, six different types of uh, material. Three of those types of material are uh, combustible. <laughs> Means it'll catch on fire, right? So what if I fill this whole room with wood, hay, and stubble, and I set fire to it? It doesn't matter if I've got three rows full or if I've got a whole church full. When all's said and done, how much wood, hay, and stubble am I going to have? None, right? The quantity is irrelevant, but the quality is what's key. Now, what if I've got uh, precious stones uh, and, and gold and silver, that kind of thing? If I put the fire to that, what happens to that? Does it all melt away or does it become refined? It's refined. And I've got enough people here that work for ATI that should have been able to answer that, right? Because you're experts in metallurgy. But um, the work is refined. Uh, it's, not, it's not lost. Now, some are going to see their whole work burned up before them. That's why this is an important thing for us to talk about. And I know some people say, well, I don't care, really. I just, I'm just glad to go to heaven, and I don't care anything about works. I don't care about crowns and all this stuff. But imagine standing before the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I don't know if it's just going to be you and him or if we're all going to see it. That's a sobering thought, too, isn't it? But to have your whole body of work go up in smoke. The Bible talks about not being ashamed before him at his coming. And I think that's exactly what it's referring to. I think there are going to be some folks that are going to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Not for their sin, but to see the loss of reward. Uh, the Bible says that God will wipe away all tears, but that happens after in the eternal day of God. Um, and, and I believe there will be some sadness at the judgment seat of Christ. Not Again, not for our sins, but when we see the opportunities that we had and then we didn't make the most of them. Or, and this is a biggie, or that we did them with impure motives because we can do the right things for the wrong reason. We can do it to be seen to people. We can do it to, for the accolades of man. Uh, one final caveat here. Some may lose their reward, but verse 15 makes it clear that the person themselves will be saved. And everybody just breathed a huge sigh of relief right there. Amen? <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you, Jesus. We may suffer loss. Think of it this way. This is a judgment for rewards. The believer is no more going to lose his salvation than a runner uh, would be punished for coming in second place. It's the same principle. It's a judgment of, uh, of rewards. Let's go to the next slide. Just to reinforce this, I put a couple of scriptures up here. Um, where, where do works factor in, in in our salvation? Are any of us saved by works? No. And that's what that judgment is, is the judgment of works. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says what? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of what? 
works, lest any man should boast. You know, if we could claim credit for our salvation, we'd do it in a heartbeat. We would. That's just how we're wired. You know, I think some people think that when we get to heaven, God's going to call on us to give a testimony or something. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be the case at all. I think there's, uh, Alistair Begg, you ever heard of him? He said there's going to be three surprises in heaven. And I've, I've probably told this before, but I'll tell it again, just in case there may be some poor soul that hadn't heard this joke. But he says there's going to be three surprises in heaven. He said, number one, uh, the people that are not there that you thought would be. That'd be a big surprise. And then the second surprise is the people who are there that you didn't think were saved because you judged them, but they were saved by grace. And then the biggest surprise of all is that you're there. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest surprise of all. When you see how holy God is, you see what Jesus did, and you realize how uh, really unclean we are from the inside out, it's a miracle that any of us are saved. It really is. It's, you know what Isaiah says, and, I, and I've meditated on this a lot lately. The Bible says that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Our good deeds. That means the best we have to offer. All right, John 5, verse 24. This is powerful. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life. That's in the present tense. If you're saved, you have eternal life right now. I don't have to wait till I get to heaven to experience eternal life. I have a eternal life, and something else has happened too. I shall not come into what? Condemnation. But I've passed from death into life. That means the sentence has already been passed. It's, as far as my salvation is, is, is concerned, that's a done deal. And people need to hear that. Somebody needs to hear that. Because I know some of us wrestle with assurance of salvation issues. But if you're really saved, you've passed from death unto life. Romans 8.1 also says this. It says, For there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Period. Now, King James has got that last part there, who walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The oldest manuscripts don't show that part of it. But, you know... We're not going to talk about that here this morning because this is not a translation symposium here. But there, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He didn't say there's not much or just a little, but there's none. And some of you, Satan beats you up constantly about your past. You did this way back when you did this, or maybe you did it last night. I don't know. But if you confess to God, God says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, next slide. Let's talk about the five crowns. Uh, now, the, the crowns here that are spoken of, and that little picture here is probably not an accurate depiction of what they look like, what they would look like but you know I wanted to give you a visual just to break up the monotony of all the text on the on the, the board but this, there's two kinds of crowns in Greek one is the diadem and that's worn by a sovereign uh, by virtue of of his excellency by 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 very nature he's uh, he's born a royal he would wear a, a diadem this crown however in the Greek is a stephanos Crown. And it's a crown that was given 
uh, in the Greek games or the Olympic games, if you want to use that. And it was, uh, it was like a wreath that was placed upon the, the runner as a prize for, for winning the race. He was placed, uh, if I could say it this way, it was given to those who would overcome. Okay? You and I are all in a race. And we might not all come in first, and that's okay. But we're going to finish the race. That's what's important. We're going to finish the race. And the reason I know I'm going to finish the race is because Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And in the book of Hebrews, it says that my Jesus Christ, he is not only the author, but he's also the finisher of my faith, the perfecter of my faith. And so I'm going to make it, and you are too. You need to hear that. All right, the first crown is, is the incorruptible crown. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. Let's look at them together. Adam, can I put you to work again? 1 Corinthians 9. Once shaved, always shaved. That was a pretty good joke. I, I just had to share that with you. <clears throat> Feel free to use it. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in it such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who completes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we have for an imperishable crown. Would you go ahead and read those last two verses too? Yes, sir. Therefore I run, therefore I run this, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it to subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. All right, thank you. Now this, this verse has puzzled some folks, but you have to remember Paul is the one who just wrote the, the treatise on eternal security. He's the one that said there's no condemnation in Christ. So what is Paul talking about when he says, I should be a, a King James as a castaway or disqualified? He's talking about rewards here. Paul was not one bit worried about losing his salvation. Not one bit. But he was concerned about losing his reward. Paul says, I discipline my body. This particular crown is given to those who have learned to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and discipline their flesh. Doesn't mean that they're sinless, but it does mean that they sin less. <clears throat> I had to say that carefully. It's for those who have purpose to, to, uh, to live an overcoming life. And if you want to know how to do that, read Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. All right, let's go to the crown of rejoicing. Brother Adam, you want to help me with all these? 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. For what is our hope? Or joy or crown of rejoicing is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as his, Jesus Christ as his coming all right that's the crown of rejoicing this is what we would call the soul winner's crown it is the crown for evangelism have you have you led anybody to Christ or have you attempted to that's the key we can't save anybody but uh, have you shared the gospel when was the last time you shared your faith with someone it's important the Bible says he that winneth souls is wise Use every opportunity that you can to share the gospel. Uh, one, one area that God has convicted me about is in the area of social media. 
Now, I, I took a break. You know, I hadn't posted anything on Facebook in about a month or so. But I found that a lot of things I just post on Facebook are just frivolous or whatever. That I need to be sharing some things about my faith more on there. Uh, and whatever opportunity God has given you, use it. Uh, because there's a crown of rejoicing for those who uh, evangelize. How about the crown of righteousness? Second Timothy. Second Timothy 4. Second Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh, boy. Now, here is a crown every one of us can get. Here is a crown every one of us in this room can get. That's amazing. It's amazing. You say, well, Henry, why do you talk about the rapture so much? It's because I don't want you to be without a crown in heaven. We can have a crown if we love his appearing, if we long for his appearing. You know, a lot of preachers won't preach on the coming of the Lord anymore. Uh, I, uh, there was a contestant on Jeopardy the other day, and uh, there was a, a so-called reverend, and I looked him up on, uh, on the Internet. Because he seemed kind of shady to me. There was just something about him that seemed kind of funny. And sure enough, he said that he was affirming of all the LGBTQ, blah, blah, blah. And he says, and I don't believe in the rapture. Oh, well, you ain't much of a preacher. You might call yourself Reverend so-and-so. But you're not a true minister of the gospel. We can, we can have a crown of righteousness if we love his appearing. All right, the crown of life. James chapter 1. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen. If you would, read Revelation 2, verse 10 also. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will be, have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right, thank you. So James says that the crown of life is, is for those who, are in, who have overcome trials. Is there anybody in this room that feels as though they have had a severe trial? Anybody? Maybe you're going through one right now. Now, the devil would have you believe that you're going through this trial because you don't have enough faith or because God's abandoned you. But the Bible says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened unto you. But our faith, which is more precious than gold, if it's tried by fire, it'll be found unto glory at the appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So whatever you're going through this morning, I don't care how difficult it is, understand that your suffering is not in vain and that God will reward you on that day for overcoming the trials of life. Well, somebody needs to hear that this morning. If you're going through a difficult time, understand this, that it is for the glory of God and it will ultimately end for your glory. Now, Revelation 2.10, Jesus is talking to the church at Smyrna. 
and they are going to be martyred for their faith. So the crown of life is for those who overcome trials and for those who are martyred. Now the last crown is in First Peter chapter 5, and I'll give you a break, Adam. I'll read that one. Uh, First Peter, First Peter chapter 5. In verse 2, uh, Peter says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, not, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear. Well, I like that. Now, I'm a shepherd, but I'm not the chief shepherd. I'm the pastor of this church, but I'm not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, and he is the chief shepherd. And one day, every shepherd, under shepherd, is going to have to give an account to the chief shepherd. And that's why I ask you to pray for me all the time, so that I'll keep my life and my doctrine where it needs to be, straight down the middle, not veering off to the left or to the right. You shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. That's the crown of glory. Now, I want to say this to you, too. I don't believe that this is limited only to senior pastors. I believe that's for anybody that has taken a leadership role in the church to feed and care for the flock of God. I believe that. I don't believe it's just for pastors. But, um, but those are the five crowns, the Stephanus crowns. Let's go to the next slide. All right, go with me to Revelation chapter 1. We're coming to a close here, and you don't believe it when I say that, but you can hope. Revelation 1. We are going to go through the book of Revelation, uh, if God willing, and I'll get to live that long, because he's been preparing me to teach it. And I'm, I'm happy to report to you that you can understand the book of Revelation. It's not beyond comprehension. It's really not. As a matter of fact, when you start looking at the book of Revelation... The symbols and things are explained. You say, well, this is what this means, and this is, you just have to pay attention when you're reading. But Revelation 1.19 shows you the division of the book. Write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, as far as John is concerned, what are the things that he had seen? He saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. Okay? Now, at one time, John leaned on the bosom of Jesus at the Last Supper. But when he sees Jesus here... And by the way, it's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation, singular. And it's not the revelation of future events, but it's the revelation of a person. The book of Revelation is all about a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And when John saw him, the Bible says he fell at his feet as a dead man. You know, We got these pictures of Jesus with the long hair holding the lamb on his shoulder and everything. And he may have looked like that when he walked the earth. I doubt he looked like an Anglo-Saxon, but anyway... Uh, he, he may have looked something like that, I don't know. But I guarantee you, he don't look like that now. Now he's got hair white like wool. His feet are like burnished brass. His eyes are as a flame of fire. And if we were to see him, we would all be, our loins would be loosed, to use a King James expression. We would come unglued if we were to see, that's how he is. But that's the things that he saw. Now what about the things that are? Well, that's the church age. That's the seven lampstands that he saw. That's chapters 2 and 3. Then when you get to chapter 4, and I want you to turn there now, Revelation 4. (coughs) 
Now we're going to see the things that are hereafter. Verse 1 says, After this, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you the things that must be what? Hereafter. Remember the division of the book, the things that you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So this is the future portion of the book of Revelation. Now I want you to see something in Revelation 4. Now some, some people see uh, that John is being raptured here, but I think that's reading into it. Uh, he's just told to come up hither. Okay, So John is told to come up higher, come up to where... Uh, to heaven now he's not there physically he's there in the spirit but when he gets to heaven there's a funny thing he he sees the church is already there church is already there and that's going to become uh important as we see in just a moment john sees this uh in a vision he says i was in the spirit you notice that in verse two immediately i was in the spirit so he was not physically there but he was in a vision he was in the spirit uh, the person he sees a person on the throne verse 3 he says the one that sat on the throne was like a jasper and a sardine stone and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like into an emerald the rainbow is God's symbol doesn't belong to anybody else it's God's symbol let's go to the next slide there's only two more slides or only one more slide after this one Notice in verse 4, round about the throne, there were 24 elders that were there. And the Bible commentators uh, have a field day with this. Who are the 24 elders? Well, I think we get some clues. Okay, Number one, we see that they're wearing white garments in verse 4. White garments are always the garments, they're symbols of salvation. These are people who were lost but then got saved. Are you with me so far? Secondly, we see that they had on their heads, verse 4, crowns. Now guess what kind of crowns they are. They're not diadems. They're the Stephanos crowns. The ones that are given to the church, the overcomers. Are y'all with me so far? Elders is never a term referred to celestial beings like angels. Elders is always used of humans, whether it be leaders in the church or the elders of Israel, the, the leadership of Israel. The term elder is never applied to angels or celestial beings. The number 24 probably comes from 1 Chronicles 24, where David divides, and I'd encourage you to read it. I'm not going to go into it this morning. David divides the priesthood into 24 divisions. So it has to do with the priesthood. The church is depicted as a kingdom of priests. Now, this is important. I need you to understand this because there's a lot of confusion about the 24 elders. Some people say, well, it's the 12 patriarchs or 12 apostles or whatever. No. It's important to understand that these are priests and kings. In the Old Testament, you could be a king or you could be a priest but you couldn't be both. 
to be a king, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. And that's why the northern kingdom was worthless, pretty much. There were no good kings out of the northern kingdom. Surprise. <laughs> Don't do it God's way. Get what you see is what you get. Uh, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of what? Levi. They were exclusive. When kings tried to be priests, they got into trouble. When Saul tried to offer up like the priest, what happened? God took the kingdom away from him. There was another king, and his name escapes me. It may have been Uzziah um, or Hezekiah. It was one of, the, one of the kings offered up incense, and he died a leper because he tried to intrude into the priesthood. You could be a king or a priest. There's only three entities in the Bible that were both a king and a priest. Number one was Melchizedek. We read about him in Genesis. book of Hebrews goes on about him. Number two is Jesus. He's a king and a priest. Number three is you and me. Peter says that we're a royal priesthood. That means we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, I know some of you are still skeptical about this, but I'll prove it to you in just a minute. The elders are seen as casting crowns. I like their music. Anybody like casting crowns? You ever wonder what that, uh, where their title came from? I think it probably came from here. Notice this in Revelation 4, verse 10. It says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you know you were created for God's enjoyment? I have to remind myself sometimes of that, that I was created for God's enjoyment. And I don't mean just so you can have a good laugh. Because <laughs> I'm sure I provide plenty of that, plenty of comic relief. God says, what are you doing? Not again, Henry. Um, you say, well, I don't care anything about crowns. Well, what an awkward moment that would be when everybody else is casting their crowns before the throne of God. And you're like... Uh, sorry I'm just happy to be here now that sounds I'm making it funny but it's really not funny is it think about that and there will be people that are not going to have anything to throw, throw down now I don't think we're going to throw our crowns down and give them away forever but I believe this is going to be a continuous thing I believe that throughout the millennium we are going to worship the King of Kings. And when we are entering into His presence, I believe we're going to lay those crowns down at His feet. So let me ask you, do you want to be empty-handed? When that happens, do you want to be empty-handed? I don't. Their song gives us a clue to their identity. Go with me to chapter 5 now. See, if you just read the Bible, if you just keep on reading, it'll answer your questions. Look at the song the 24 elders sing. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, and having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Huh. Quick note here. You need to keep on praying, folks. God's got your prayers in a bottle. None of your prayers have gone to waste. 
And notice what they sing in verse 9, a new song. You're worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. There's this book, there's this title deed to planet earth. It's a seven sealed scroll is what it is. And it's the title deed to planet earth. And to open the seals thereof, for you were slain, that's the lamb y'all sang about a while ago. He's the lion and the lamb. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Notice from where? From out of Israel? From out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Oh, that's New Testament, folks. I think it's also representative of all 24 you know, hours of the day, all the time zones. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> that's who the 24 elders are. They're the redeemed. And there's a lot of them there. Now, I know it's become popular in recent days for preachers to preach mid-trib and post-trib. I do not believe for one moment the church is going through the tribulation period. I can prove it from the book of Revelation. The tribulation does not start until chapter 6. Remember I mentioned that seven-sealed scroll? If you get over into chapter 6, the tribulation doesn't begin until he opens the first scroll. And when he opens that first scroll, there's a guy on a white horse, the Bible says in verse 2. And it's not Jesus, because if it's Jesus, he sure is keeping some bad company. Because there's three other horsemen, and they all represent death and devastation. The Antichrist comes on the scene in Revelation 6, verse 2. So the point I'm making is, before any of that stuff starts to happen on the earth, the church is already in heaven. And, and, has already received their reward. Because we all have our crowns. That's amazing, folks. So I'm, this, this is something that I'm going to share with you. And I'll get more into it as we, as we go on um, in, in the coming weeks as we study the end times prophecy and stuff. I used to think that as soon as the rapture happened, the tribulation would start immediately. And it might. But what I've come to learn is that there could be an interval of an indefinite period of time between the rapture and the tribulation starts. The rapture is not what begins the tribulation period. And we'll get into that, I promise. If you remember our study from the book of Daniel, the tribulation begins with the signing of a seven-year covenant. That is the sign of the tribulation beginning. Or we would call it, I prefer to call it Daniel's 70th week, but I just use the nomenclature we're all accustomed to using. That does not begin until the, the signing of the covenant. The Antichrist makes a firm covenant. The King James says for one week, which is seven years. That is the start of the tribulation period. Now, it's provocative to me that after the church age, in chapter 3, you've got two whole chapters here in Revelation 4 and 5 where the church is in heaven for an indefinite period of time. We don't know as far as God's concerned. It may feel like a, a millisecond up there. I don't know. But I'm just telling you this because there's some people that think, well, the Lord can't come back because this has got to happen and this has got to happen and this has got to happen. Understand, some of that might happen in the interval. I don't know. 
But uh, we'll, we'll get into more of that. All right, let's go to the last slide. One thing I do know for sure is that the return of Jesus is imminent. Now, that doesn't mean it's happening in 30 minutes or next week, but it means it will happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen. It's going to happen quickly. He says, Behold, I come quickly. That means when it begins to happen, man, this thing's going to steamroll. There's not going to be any time to get your affairs in order. Man, we're used to procrastinating it now, aren't we? Well, I'll just take my dear sweet time. No. When Christ returns, there's not going to be any time. When you hear the trumpet sound, oh man, I need to be witnessing for, for, for the Lord. That's too late. I need to be overcoming my flesh. It's too late. He says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. God wants to reward his people. Some of you think that, that Jesus is just mad at you all the time, that he just, he wants to beat you up, that he's just standing by the throne with a lightning bolt just ready to throw it down if you have the, the slightest misstep. God wants to give you a reward. That's what he wants. He wants to reward you. And what a glorious time that's going to be. Wow. I mean, not for me, but for some of these folks, it's going to be amazing to see everything they've done for the Lord. And they did it with a pure heart. And it's just going to be, uh, and I think we're going to be really surprised. I really do. Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. And I think some of the big shots are not going to be big shots in the millennium. And some of the nobodies, I say that tongue in cheek, are going to be the real rulers in the kingdom. I, I really believe that. James 5 uh, verse 8 says that the Lord is standing at the door. It's interesting to me, in none of the New Testament books does Paul ever tell the church to look for the Antichrist. Now, if the church is going to go through the tribulation, you would think he would be preparing them. Okay, this is going to happen. You need to have six months worth of ramen noodles and beanie weenies. And plenty of toilet paper. Some of y'all probably got a whole room full of toilet paper from back in COVID times. You had to add on to your house. We call this the Scott Wing. <laughs> Welcome to Charmin Acres. Yeah. No. Oh. Help me get back on track here, Lord. Help me get back on track. The Lord's coming is imminent. And Paul told the church to look for Jesus. We're looking for Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, every chapter in the first book of Thessalonians talks about looking for Jesus. The only time Paul talks about the Antichrist is in 2 Thessalonians 2. And it's because they had been confused because somebody had written them a forgery and told them they were already in the tribulation period. And Paul wrote to them to correct their erroneous theology. He says, look, the tribulation can't happen until something else happens. And I'll share that with you later. I won't. Steal my own thunder. But the return of the Lord is imminent. And it's a blessed hope. Listen. If you're saved, you ain't got one problem that the rapture won't solve. If you're saved. 
Now, I know we have loved ones we don't want to leave behind. And, but for you personally, if you're saved, you don't have one problem that the rapture wouldn't solve immediately. Solve every problem. Every morning when I'm opening up the ibuprofen, I think I don't have one problem that the rapture wouldn't solve. Right? Look around you. Look around you. The world is in distress. The world is in chaos. David Jeremiah said something recently, and I totally agree with him. He believes the world is rapidly heading to a globalist society and a one-world order. And he believes that COVID was kind of a training ground, test run, if you will, to see how people comply to certain things and, you know, how, how global entities cooperate with each other. And he said this, and this has just really resonated with me, that the world is just one existential crisis away from a, a one-world government. You know. Now, I'm not belittling COVID. I had friends that died from COVID. We had, we've all had loved ones and friends that have died from COVID. But I'm telling you, the stuff in the book of Revelation, it's going to make COVID look like nothing, honestly. When you look at the horrors of the tribulation period, uh, millions, billions of people are going to die during the tribulation period. And the world is going to be looking for some kind of a global solution. Think about it, right? I want you to think about this right now. Who in the world would be able to lead the world if there was an existential crisis? Who would it be? I don't know of any of the, the leaders of the world that would be able to. But there's going to be something coming. You can count on it. You can mark it down. It may be before the tribulation, or it may be after, I don't know. But something's coming soon that's going to cause the whole world to look for a solution, and somebody's going to have to step out. Somebody's going to step out in, into the wings. The devil's always had the Antichrist waiting in the wings. Every generation, I believe, he's got his man. It was Adolf Hitler. It was Mussolini. It was Stalin. But he's got his man somewhere ready to step on the world stage with all the answers, and the whole world will follow him because they've rejected the truth. Now, I've talked about the, the rapture of the church. What I've talked about here today is for believers. Believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive a reward. But what happens to those folks that don't know the Lord? What happens to those folks who are not believers in Christ? Well, the book of Revelation also tells us, and you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 20 it tells us, that those who don't receive Jesus as Lord, they will have a judgment called the white throne judgment. And they won't be able to plead not guilty and point to the Lamb of God who has taken away their sin. They will stand before God and give an account for every deed, every thought, every word, every action. And they will be, based upon, they will be just based on their works for condemnation and there won't be any plea bargaining God's not going to say oh you were, you were a pretty good guy you were a decent person you treated people well you were nice that's not going to be the basis of salvation he's not going to do it that way all of those who meet God at the white throne judgment will be cast into the lake of fire and just as sure as I believe heaven is real and I believe the rapture is real, I also believe that hell is real. It's a place of torment, a place of consciousness. 
If you read the account of hell in Luke's gospel, the man in hell was conscious. He was aware of what was going on. He was in suffering. He was in torment. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, is it fair that God sent his son into the world to die on, in your place? Was that fair? <laughs> I call that the great exchange, my friend. I can take what Jesus did for me and have that applied to, applied to my account. Would you stand this morning? I thank you for your attention this morning. I thank you for taking these things to heart. Christ is coming again. He may come for you personally before the day's over. None of us are promised tomorrow. Not one of us is promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ came the first time as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He died on the cross and paid the debt that you and I can never repay, the sin debt. And if we, by faith, will accept what Jesus did for us, if we will believe it and trust in Christ for our salvation, we will pass, listen very carefully, you will pass this day from death unto life. You don't have to worry about your future anymore. Wouldn't that be great? Not to worry about your future anymore. Oh yes, there'll still be trials and temptations in this life. But as far as your eternal salvation is concerned, you can make a decision today that will affect you for all of eternity. And you can pass from death unto life. But it's your choice. God's not going to force you to do it. If you feel the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, you may be watching this today on Facebook. And you feel the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart. And you say, well, can God forgive me of what I've done? There's not one sin that the blood of Jesus can't forgive. Not one sin. He holds his arms open wide. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Christ, he will never turn you away. If you come to him, sincerely trust in him for salvation. Would you come?